Hi Plum friends and welcome to another episode of the PBN podcast. I'm your host Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode we have Tommy Makanjula. Tommy is a vegan chef and a blogger and the brains behind The Vegan Nigerian, a platform dedicated to making Nigerian cuisine with an aim to making the plant-based lifestyle more accessible to the mainstream. Tommy is an entrepreneur living in London and she has a genuine passion for food, travel, writing and of course cooking. Her website boasts a wealth of delicious and easy vegan recipes, many inspired by her Nigerian cultural heritage. In 2018, Tomi published the Plantain Cookbook, which featured over 40 plantain-infused recipes. I really hope you love this episode as much as I did. Please don't forget to comment, like, and share if you enjoy this episode. And if you're on iTunes, please do leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. So let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Tomi. It's a real pleasure to have you on. No, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And so it begins. I'm here in Nigeria and I plan to vlog my way through this entire trip. We arrived in Nigeria last night and we actually staying at a hotel really close to the airport. And then today we're going to go visit some relatives and then going to go to our house. So I'm really looking forward to seeing Nigeria after so many years. It's been 12 years since I've been back. So like this is insane but i'm really happy to be here and i'm really excited to take you guys along this journey i hope you like and subscribe and watch all my vlogs because i have a lot coming for you guys so before we talk about all the amazing things that you've done in uh, recent years can we go back in time and let's hear your vegan story how did you discover vegan and where did it all begin Yeah, so for me, I discovered veganism when I was about 20, just about to turn 21. I was still at university at the time, and I was studying English and French. So because of my degree, you have to spend a year abroad. So I was actually in France when I turned vegan, which everyone tells me is crazy because that's probably the most difficult place to go vegan. But I remember for me, it was a matter of health at first. I was feeling very sluggish at the time, just really lacking in a lot of energy. And I think instinctively, I just kind of knew that my food and my eating habits had something to do with that. And so I remember just cutting out animal products for about a week to see how I felt. And I noticed a difference almost immediately. Now, mind you, at this point, I didn't know much about the vegan lifestyle. I hadn't done any research whatsoever. And If you had told me like a week before that I would be going vegan, I'd probably have laughed in your face. (laughs) So I'm laughing because that's exactly the, that's exactly the same thing that I've said. (laughs) Seriously. Yeah, I know. It's like, and and then we'll go into it a bit more later on when I talk about sort of my background growing up in the Nigerian culture, but yeah, so that's where I was. And um, so while all of this sort of health uh, stuff was going on, I was also living with a family that had a pet dog. I had one of those moments where, you know, I bonded really well with this dog and growing up, we'd never really had pets. And so for the first time I was interacting with this puppy and thinking to myself, like, gosh, you know, human beings are kind of hypocritical. We treat certain animals with so much love and care and compassion and others are just faceless and We don't even really know where they come from and they just end up on our plates. So I had these sort of two streams of thinking going on at the time. And by the time I kind of put them together, I just found myself 
really open to the idea of going vegan. And so, yeah, I just started researching. I started watching documentaries, reading books, and it just felt right. And so in the blink of an eye, I had gone from a complete meat eater to fully vegan. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, I have a similar, my, my story is very, very similar. And it's I chuckled because you used the exact same phrase I used when I said, <laughs> when I said I'd laugh in people's faces. Because <laughs> I grew up on a farm and I grew up in Africa and meat to me is, was so, is so deeply entwined in my culture. And I say that exact same thing because it was such a different like the idea of not eating meat just seems so alien to me yeah so your 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 childhood you you grew up in lagos or you're born in lagos yes born and raised in lagos um busy metropolitan city you know always bustling and very very busy and yeah the food culture there is very rich of course uh, we love our food i feel like sometimes our life revolves around it you know family events, even just coming together for dinners together every single day as a family and having home-cooked meals. Food was a huge part of my childhood. And uh, that's pretty much why I fell in love with cooking and why I do what I do now. You know, I can trace it all the way back to being a kid and just loving to help my mom out or my dad out in the kitchen, experimenting with recipes, learning to recreate recipes that my mom would teach me or yes, I would say my love of food definitely stemmed from that. There's lots of food in front of us. Uh, you know I like my food. But can you ever be a vegan? I'm not sure, no. Vegan, probably not. Not for you. <laughs> right. Now, Nigerians, just as many other nations across Africa, love their food and especially meat dishes. So how easy is it to be a vegan on what is widely perceived as a meat-loving continent? Our guest, Tommy Makanjuola, is a vegan and an avid blogger who runs her own blog called The Vegan Nigerian. Thank you for joining us on the program. My pleasure. Peter here cannot do without meat. He's Nigerian himself. Mm. I'm sure you have something to ask. Well, I mean, I just wonder, because I mean, growing up, you know, eating meat was like something really special. You know, you, you had meat on Sundays after church and all that. You're the first Nigerian I've ever met who's vegan. I mean, wow. are, are there many of you? <laughs> I don't think there are many of us. Well, that's my no. point. <laughs> How easy is it for you to for be me, a vegan amongst meat-loving people? For me, it has been surprisingly easy. The, the major challenge, as you say, really, is the, the cultural aspect and the family gatherings and having to explain why it is you don't eat meat to yeah, family members. So why don't you eat meat? Um, for me, it was mainly the health reasons. Uh -huh. So I did a bit of my own research and veganism came up along the way and it kind of sparked a light bulb uh, moment for me. Okay. Tell us a little bit about what is Nigerian food like? Is it spicy? Is it fragrant like because obviously culturally food varies very different it's very different from uh, place to place around the world yeah I would say our food is very rich you know it's there's a lot of spice for sure there's a lot of chilies used in our cooking um, and even just the method and the way we cook everything is just very abundant I guess I would say so we eat a lot of stews a lot of soups uh, which would be accompanied by a kind of starch. So, for example, yam and cassava grows in abundance in Nigeria. And you would have Ooh, what's that. that. What's a cassava? Cassava, yeah, it's like a root vegetable. It's very, very similar to yam, comparable to potato as well. But okay. the way you would prepare it, you know, there's so many different ways. You can sort of grind it and have like a flour, which you mix with water to make a dough, like a dough sort of starch 
or you can just boil it, roast it, um, so many different ways. Um, and so that would be like the base of the meal. And then you would top it with your stew or vegetable stew. And um, yeah, and, and also we eat a lot of rice. So I always like to say that the Nigerian cuisine is very much plant friendly or plant based friendly because, you know, the meat is usually just added on top of, of whatever you cook. So I have a whole bunch of yam at home that I need to use up and I was going to go through my blog and find an old recipe that doesn't have a video yet and make a video of it, right, using yam as the main ingredient. But then I was thinking, had this idea, that what would happen if I sliced yam into really thin pieces, put it in the toaster and used it almost as like a bread substitute? I know that's such a weird thought to have, but I was like, hey, who knows, right? I haven't seen anyone put yam, like Nigerian yam in a toaster yet. I have some peanut butter in the fridge that I'm just gonna spread over the top. It actually makes a really nice neutral base. I'm not gonna lie. I think it would be fun to experiment with other toppings as well. So like maybe some avocado, maybe some scrambled tofu. I already know scrambled tofu would work because that's pretty much like, yam with scrambled tofu which is delicious. I think this could become a thing for me especially because I don't need a lot of bread anyway. Um, I do occasionally but not a lot so this is like a fun alternative way of using yam I guess. It's very similar to where I grew up. I grew up in Zimbabwe and um, our food culture is, is is in the in the same sense, obviously influenced by British culture, because obviously it was a British colony, but also the local African culture is 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 the same, very rich with lots of interesting like starches. We you ate, you ate something called sadza, which is made from corn, ground corn, like a like a kind of paste that you would dip into a stew with like a um, a vegetable relish and something like that. And yeah, the 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 kind of meat was never the sort of main part of the meal. The meat was always just the, the flavor. And the starch, which was the sadza, was a huge part of the meal. So it was about mm, maybe 60% of the plate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and that's what's great about that's what's great about you know living and growing up in a different cultures is is experiencing that. So yeah, when did you come to Europe? When did you leave Lagos? Yeah, so we came over to live here when I was in my mid-teens. So I would say around 14, 15 quite a difficult age to move I would say because um, it was right in the middle of secondary school as well Um, but we came over here and actually most of my mom's side of the family are here so it didn't feel very sort of alienating arriving because they all kind of live in the same area we lived in the same area as them and so it was kind of comforting to have family around but yeah I was around 14 when we moved over. And what was your uh, first impression of the food and the sort of supermarkets here? Because when I first came over, when I was 19, I was blown away by the supermarkets. I could not get over how much choice there was. And everything was just, you know, obviously wrapped in plastic a million times. But the volume of food shocked me, like how much food there was. Yes, absolutely. And also, I remember thinking to myself that, gosh, like some of the things you can just easily buy at the supermarket here, there were treats for us in Nigeria. So maybe like on a weekend, you know, we go to the supermarket in Nigeria and like pick up a few things here and there. But the way it was presented here, it's just like, like you said, just so much of it and in so much packaging as well. And I will admit that 
I wasn't probably wasn't the healthiest when we first arrived because I just wanted to try a lot of things. <laughs> I would try all the chocolates, you know, discovering Maltesers and all kinds of brands and drinking a lot of soda as well. Whereas in Nigeria, again, that would just be an occasional treat. You know, like I said, back in Nigeria, you just, everything was just home cooked, everything made from scratch. And then to kind of come to the supermarkets here and see that you can buy ready meals. The temptation is to try it at least. Um, yeah. And so it was very, very interesting. <laughs> Not the health. Yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite hard to understand you know how most people manage to not uh, indulge in junk food every single day because it's just it's there's so much of it yeah you go into the supermarkets and i call them the aisle of temptation mm -hmm. when you walk out of the supermarket or the cafe there's usually this sort of aisle where all the sweets and chocolates and biscuits and cookies and you know everything that you can yeah. think of and soda pop is all there at, on your eye line tempting you calling you to eat it um absolutely you know, and this is why I think we have so many issues of, of health issues in, in the Western world, you know, with diabetes and obesity and heart disease and yeah. cancers, because people are eating very, very heavily processed foods. But going going back to Nigeria and, and how was the sort of like the plant aspect of your diet? Lots of fruits and vegetables or, or was it more very starch heavy? Like talk us through some some traditional Nigerian meals and what did they mm. have in them? Yeah, I would say it was quite balanced so the starches you would have things like fufu eba which is made from ground cassava or you would have like pounded yam and these would always be like half the plate for instance and then the other half of the plate would be like leafy greens cooked in a stew now the only thing i would say about nigerian cuisine sometimes is that it it tends to veer on the side of unhealthy when you consider the amount of oils and salt that's used in the cooking process. So for example, palm oil is uh, abundant in West Africa and it finds its way into many of our traditional dishes. And so it's not uncommon to sort of have a plate of stew just like swimming in the palm oil. Yeah. And over time, I've kind of grown more interested in nutrition and food and having a healthy, balanced diet. And so when I look at our foods, I'm like, there's so much potential here to just make slight changes and tweaks and it's completely healthy. It's completely plant-friendly. And so, yeah, the foods will be made up of that sort of large portions, which over time I've come to like understand about portion control as well. It is, it really is. Uh, we eat a lot of pulses. So things like beans, uh, stews, yeah, just a lot of leafy greens, I would say, makes its way into, into our cuisine as well. The meat would be obviously a big element of that. And I'd say that's more of a mindset thing than it necessarily has to be there. I think there's this idea that a meal isn't complete unless it has meat as well. If you're familiar with Nigerian food, you know moi moi is like a steamed bean pudding, which is made by blending beans with peppers and spices and onions. And then you steam it normally in a banana leaf. That's a traditional way. Or if you don't have access to that, you can also steam it in ramekins. Now, some of you may know, I've been gardening throughout lockdown, growing things like kale and lettuce and all kinds of greens. And I've been, I guess, thinking of creative ways to use them up in recipes. And this recipe today is exactly one of those that I have thought of, want to try and see if it works. 
And what kind of meats was the sort of staple? Because um, it does vary from country to country, but was mm. it what kind of so, meats and animals were kind of the primary source of protein? Yeah, so for us, the primary sources were chicken, of course, and then beef, goat meat. I remember snail was eaten a lot. Those giant snails, right? Yeah, the giant snails, yeah, cooked in like a pepper sauce. I would say those are the main ones, a bit of lamb here and there. But those were the main ones. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, making this lifestyle change must have had some kind of uh, reaction from your family. Because <laughs> if your family's anything like mine, when I, you know, being from Africa, the idea of not eating meat is sort of, you know, an affront to our culture. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got some pretty like shocked reactions in the beginning. Did you, how was your family and what was your, your peers like when you said you were going to do this? Oh, yeah, big time. A lot of skepticism at first. And yeah, just they they would sort of look at me with (laughs) incredulity. (laughs) And I remember my brother just saying stuff like, oh, I don't think this is going to be sustainable. Like how? Like just how are you going to do this? And then I think actually my nuclear family, they adapted to it much quicker than the rest of my extended family. So I remember just having more interesting encounters when I would go visit like my aunts or my uncles, my grandparents. And it it would always turn into this big discussion about why am I eating the way I'm eating? Or I would be, yeah, or I'd be presented with like a stew with clearly meat in there. And be told things like, oh, you can just pick around it or just, you know, just pick out the sauce and it's fine. And then I would have to explain. And yeah, so I've, I've done a lot of explaining, I would say. <laughs> and and how are things now? I mean, how many years ago was that? So when did you first make the change? So it's been seven and a half years now. Yeah. So at this point, everyone's kind of used to it. I'm known as the vegan in the family. Um, (laughs) like no one else has gone vegan like over the course of all these years but I've definitely noticed like slight changes and even with my mom and my dad they have meat-free days now which before would have been unheard of yeah Mm. and with regards sort of like health in Nigerian culture as well because we have a huge problem with heart disease um, and type 2 diabetes here in the UK I don't know if you know much about how the health landscape is in Nigeria, because obviously it's eating things uh, like chicken and lambs and things very high in animal fats, and obviously a palm oil. If you cook with a lot of palm oil, that's very high in saturated fats as well. Is there a lot of sort of similar health problems sort of rising in the culture there too? Yes, yes, I would say over the yeah over the last few years, there's definitely been more of a spike in that direction. Like in big cities like Lagos, for instance, um, we're beginning to see more fast food chains, which sort of emulate the West. And so um, when people are indulging in that, coupled with perhaps the way they're cooking our traditional foods anyway, there's definitely more of a spike in like health related diseases. Or I hear stories of people who have like heart attacks and other dietary related illnesses. And I don't know much historically about how things used to be you know way back in the day because I think it would be interesting to kind of compare because I know that meat used to be seen as a luxury and so it wouldn't be eaten like three times a day or you know ridiculous amounts Um, and so I do wonder whether like just over time our health is getting worse because of the change in the way we're eating and then While all of this is happening, though, I think because of technology and just the connectivity of the internet, 
I've noticed a lot of Nigerians are starting to focus on their health a bit more. So there's sort of this knock-on effect of recognizing that, hey, all of these things are catching up to us. How can we return to our traditional way of eating that's healthier and more beneficial for us? Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are unaware that, you know, cultures that have eaten little to no meat have actually been the non-European, the non-Caucasian cultures. Vegan, or you know, is obviously it's a modern word. Vegan comes from the word vegetarian without the bits in the middle. But the idea of not eating meat and living without meat is, is you know, it's been part of, of the many sort of, you know, ethnic cultures throughout the world for, for, for thousands of years. Now, in today's world, though, veganism is a very kind of white middle class thing. Uh, and, you know, it's often seen as a very white middle class thing that people who are privileged have the privilege to be able to do. Uh, and it has, it, it has a negative stigma in that sense that it's sort of sometimes seen as quite elitist that you have the privilege to be able to choose the food that you eat. Um, I've spoken to uh, some some African-American uh, vegans uh, over, the, over the years, and they have really battled with talking to their friends and families or coming to their friends and families with this idea because it's often seen in in uh, African-American culture and in Black culture sort of globally as a, as a sort of white thing, as a Caucasian thing. Have you ever kind of come come across that? Have you ever, from your friends or family, sort of seen you as sort of you know what you're doing as 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 kind of counter to your culture, you know, in that sense? Yes, I have. I have received comments like that in the past, um, and yeah, it's a very interesting one because everything you just described there can translate to sort of Nigeria as well. The way I like to look at it, the perspective I like to have on it is that. Here are groups of people in Nigeria because the wealth disparity there is is huge, right? You have the super rich and then you have the super poor. And so if you're coming with this message of veganism that will change your diet and this, not everyone has the privilege to even think about this stuff. You know, like when you come with this message, it almost feels kind of trivial. If you're not meeting the needs of people at certain levels, socioeconomic levels, how can you even begin to tackle personal health or even the treatment of animals, for instance, right? It's like, I need to look after my family. I need to look after my community first. And so, you know, tacking on veganism can seem a bit insensitive, I guess. And I've I've definitely come across people who have expressed this to me. And that's really changed my view and my approach to spreading the vegan message. It's like, I see the vegans who are very passionate about it, who are, you know, all about the animals and are these really loud advocates and I really appreciate them and I think there is a place for that in the movement but I think having a bit of understanding and understanding the nuance of culture and privilege and socioeconomic issues is also very important in the movement if you do want people to eventually adopt this lifestyle so I think it's Absolutely. very layered, yeah. Yeah, it is, and it's so multifaceted. But I think what we always have to remember is that when we are communicating this idea to others, and it is an ideology, it's an, it's a belief system, just like carnism is a belief system. Carnism, the dominant ideology in the world that says eating animals is normal and necessary, and we have to do it. You know, it's otherwise we'll die. You know, that's our kind of paradigm that we have born that we're born into. Most of us, 
veganism acts as a counterculture to that. But the thing is, at the end of the day, you know, the definition of veganism, the sort of Western definition is very much focused around animals and a sort of ending the suffering of animals. But as you pointed out, when they're human beings who are suffering in war-torn zones or they're very, they're, you know, financially, they're, they're, they're struggling to make ends meet, bringing a message of protect the animals to them is, is a real hard sell because they're just trying to put food on the table to survive. You know, they, they're just trying to get through day by day. So it's very, very difficult for sort of Western vegans to Western humans to come along and sort of try and enforce views. And often veganism can feel like that. It can feel like a, a culture that tries to force its views. Now, obviously, you can say that on the other side, that as children, we're forced to eat meat, you know, we're kind of like, we don't want to eat it. Most kids who want who express vegan or vegetarian tendencies at a young age are forced to eat meat. So on a sort of micro level, um, we are forced as well on both sides. Ultimately, it's a very, very complicated thing. And I think, you know, I get asked this all the time, how can I speak to my friends and family? And I think the best way, you know, really, and, and, and you've said it as well, is to be is to think about how you communicate these ideas to people. And, and what you're doing is, if, if for me, is the best way. It's through food. Show people that it's delicious, that it's tasty, that you don't have to miss out on it, of any of the sort of cultural and family events because you can replicate as you know pretty much anything really anything. with the right kind of things. Yeah. And now with all these amazing like vegan meat replacers, there's some incredible ch vegan chicken replacers which are actually quite easy to make once you know the recipes made with soybeans and tofus and you know i even made my own tofu a couple of weeks ago which sounds oh, nice. geeky as hell but it's so easy <laughs> not to me not to me <laughs> it's so you know you literally just blend the you get the soybeans you put them in a, in a tub of water let them soak overnight um then blend them in a blender then boil them in some a big pot of water um and then you just strain them well before you strain them you put this coagulant which is like uh, some crystals made from seaweed and then uh, it, what it does is it causes the soybeans and then the water to separate and you get another a bag like a muslin cloth and you literally strain the soybeans that you've cooked out of the pot put it into a press and you press it, and hey, presto, you have tofu. Wow, I need to try this, because I've never tried uh, making my own before. I'll send you a recipe, and it's so simple and easy, but the idea is, is that you know, you're know you creating and getting a great protein source that you can press into any shape you want. You could press it into a mold that, should look like a, that looks like a steak, and then you can press the tofu, and you can flavor it with liquid smoke and smoked paprika and chili and a bit of like, what is it, like various different sort of syrups, maybe date syrup, and then give it a fry, you know what I mean, in a grill um, to give it that delicious umami taste. But, you know, the tofu has that sort of meaty texture to it. You know, and when we when we go to people's homes or we visit friends and, and we show them how to do things and say, hey, let me let me show you this recipe without eggs or let me show you this recipe without cheese. You're not talking about veganism and you're not talking about animals. You're just talking about food and everyone loves food. And I'm sure you've had this many times when you cook for someone and they eat it and then you say that that that's vegan <laughs> and they go what <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah yeah i remember the first time i ever made um yam with scrambled tofu for my mom and she was just completely mind blown because uh so yam and egg scrambled egg is like a you know very popular dish in nigeria uh, but i did scrambled tofu instead and she was eating it and was like this is good. Like, I don't miss the egg. I, I'm not even thinking about it. Like, this just tastes good. 
And I think, yeah, like you said, leading by example is the best way sometimes, you know, just showing people what's possible. Mm. and use your and use your use your gifts you know Mm. um ultimately the end goal really is to is to remove as much suffering from our world and that is for me what veganism is it's a life philosophy that aims to remove as much suffering and that includes in my opinion human beings too you know there's no point going to buy a bar of chocolate from the supermarket if there were children in west africa who picked those beans and have had to suffer for you to you know, eat the cacao that, you know, bar of chocolate was, you know, came from. If there's slavery and human suffering involved in your vegan food, then in my opinion, that's not vegan. You know, vegan should be, vegan should be a desire to end all suffering, unnecessary suffering. And now, you know, obviously we'll say that suffering is inevitable in life, that there's, there's sometimes situations in, in the world where suffering happens and we can't control it, um, but we can do our best to try to sort of minimize it. You know, even though veganism is very strictly as a definition by the vegan society, it's very, you know, it's saying it, it says it's all about animals. But, you know, the vegan society doesn't own veganism. You know, the word vegan and veganism isn't owned by anyone. It's not it's not a it's not a philosophy that has a church where you go and there's not a book, a sacred book that you go and worship in front of. You know, our veganism, you know, whether it's black veganism, white veganism, Italian veganism, Spanish veganism, you know, it can it can express itself through the food in a different way. Obviously, we all agree and we come to this point that we want to leave animals off our plates. Uh, and, and whether it's, you know, um, Nigerian veganism or African-American veganism, that that kind of food culture is diverse and interesting and 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 varied. But, uh, but at least we can agree on this one thing that we don't need to cause unnecessary suffering to animals for us to have this wonderful pleasure in the kitchen. So, so moving on from sort of definitions and veganism and going more into what you do on a daily basis, you do some really, really cool things. You've run events and pop-up restaurants, Airbnb, vegan Nigerian dining experiences. <laughs> yeah, They sound really cool. Like tell us about some of the events that you've done because events and food are always wonderful. Oh, they really, really are. So I started doing like pop-ups and events in 2016. At the time, I was working as a chef in a vegan restaurant in London. And uh, I remember the manager sort of giving me the opportunity to use the space one night. And, you know, after that, I was just absolutely hooked um, because I saw the way the events could bring people together and spark conversations. I would have like audiences that were a mix of, yes, vegans, but also a lot of non-vegans. I would have Nigerians come in to try the food. I would have British people and people from all walks of life. And I just really, really loved the atmosphere that was created from them. And so after doing that first pop-up, I went on to do a few more and I would like choose different locations throughout London as well, just so I was like hitting different spots. And it's just been really fun. Of course, now with the pandemic, I've had to like put a stop to pretty much all of my sort of face-to-face activities. But yeah, before then I was doing that. And then I was approached by Airbnb when they launched the experiences section on their app, which basically means that if you're traveling to any city or any country, you can book onto a local experience with someone who lives there. And so I was offering my sort of vegan Nigerian dining experience on there as well. And I remember meeting people from China, from Switzerland, from the US, from just different parts of the of the world and just introducing them to this concept of vegan Nigerian food which was just so much fun. 
I've been to a few of these pop-ups and I've met some wonderful people. I um, went to a, a vegan pop-up in Cape Town in South Africa and I sat across uh, a, a young couple who, how should I say, in the nicest way, gnawed my ear off in a really good way, of course, for a, <laughs> a whole dinner. And we did not talk to anyone else because we just clicked. We just had this wonderful like connection and we, we spoke for hours and hours and hours about veganism and food mm-hmm. and culture and travel and you know, all the uh, troubles of the world. And, and this is the wonderful thing about food is that no matter who you are, no matter what, where you come from, I think sitting down with people in front of a plate of food and, and sharing stories is, is one of the greatest gifts that we can give each other as human beings. And it's one of the things I miss. I've been locked up for four months, not locked up, but you know, <laughs> hidden away for four months and I haven't seen anyone. I haven't been to any restaurants. I haven't connected with any of my friends. I, I loved one of my biggest joys in life is to go out and meet people new people and hear their stories talk to them and try their food and you know see the light in people's eyes it it, is no way to replace that over a video call no no like not at all nothing beats that face-to-face interaction it doesn't how's the lockdown been for you so anyone who's listening to this in the future it's 2020 and we are Uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic, uh, COVID nineteen, yeah. and we've all been locked away for not locked away, but you know, the whole city, cities everywhere are, are locked down. How has it been for you this process, and how has it affected your work and your mental health and and family, etc.? Yeah, it's been a strange one. It's been, you know, no two days are ever really the same. So it's coming waves for me as well, you know, emotionally, because I remember right at the very beginning of the pandemic, I suffered with a lot of anxiety which, you know, anyone who knows me would be like, you, anxiety? Like, you're the chillest person ever. I think just the gravity of the situation and just suddenly feeling all this fear all at once, plus you have the media, you know, and the news channels 24-7, and I couldn't even peel myself away from it. I was just consuming a lot of it, and I think that definitely added to the anxiety. But thankfully, I was able to actually come home to my family home right before the lockdown hit. And so I've actually spent the whole of uh, quarantine with, you know, my mom, dad, brother and sister. That helped me a lot because from that anxiety, kind of that eased into, okay, this is just the new normal that I need to get used to now. And so I sort of tried to settle into more of a routine, even got into gardening I was, Amazing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we have a special page on PBN uh, called PBN Grow, which um, I'm just developing into become what I want to, it to be a virtual community garden. Ooh. Um, so please do send in any pictures of things that you've been growing and love to feature uh, anything. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I did that. And, and, um, and then I gave myself permission to just not worry too much about work in the sense that once everything was cancelled like I was supposed to be at a vegan festival at the end of March that was cancelled that fell through I had one was that it was vegan life live oh yes yeah at at Alexandra Palace and then I had a few like catering things lined up as well that had to be cancelled or pushed forward and so I was just like okay all of this is cancelled now just pause and restock and see what you can do next And um, so over the course of lockdown, I've done a few like online cooking classes, which Mm. again, they don't replace the real thing. But actually what I found is that like 
I've had people joining the the classes who are maybe in isolation on their own and having the classes has been a great way for them to connect with other people and just like have a chat. And so I would say those have been like some of the highlights of this period, really. It, it still feels weird. And even as we are coming out of lockdown slowly now, according to the government, I think it's going to take a while before things feel normal again for me. It is a very strange time. And I'm the same as you. I also su- suffered with a lot of concerns and an- anxiousness around what was going on because it was this, this great unknown of what was happening and seeing the deaths on the television spiraling out of control, but also dealing with, you know, like what I what felt like to me a tsunami of misinformation as well. There was just so many people out there, uh, even in vegan circles. I don't know what it's like, how many vegans you know, but uh, there seems to be, and I, my friend said to me, this is not just with vegans. People have a tendency to sort of buy into or want to buy into alternative narratives and the idea that, you know, it's a hoax and that it's not really happening and that it's all, you know, the, the people in the hospitals are actors. And, you know, I really got caught into caught up in this world of people who, because I'm very connected through my social media, through a lot of different people. There's a lot of different ways in which people connect with me and with us at PBN. And on my personal Facebook page, I actually had to, after being on Facebook since 2007, I had to remove almost... 4,950 people. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, four, yeah, about 4,900 roughly. Uh, and, I, and I used an app actually, which helped me remove them all very quickly. But Facebook then blocked me for using the app. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but I had to remove people because I just, every time I was logging onto Facebook, there was more and more people fighting about the pandemic or arguing mm-hmm. about the stats or arguing about this is true and this is not true and this is fake news and that's not fake news. And it really began to affect my mental health. And I, you know, it's so true that we we can often get caught up in this sort of 24-7 rolling news. And yeah. I really feel like it can have a, a damaging effect on our mental health. And I think that it's so important to take breaks from social media. And again, not to keep bringing you back to the kitchen, but cooking food is such a, a pleasure and such a cathartic experience. And, you know, when we're feeling anxious, there's nothing better than getting into the kitchen and chopping stuff and making and boiling and creating, you know, um, I've got friends who hate cooking. I cannot understand that. Like I, I find such joy in, in preparing food for others, but also, you know, just the pleasure of making and it's creating amazing. something. Yeah making out of nothing right because that creative process for Mm. me it's cooking for sure but also baking right you know oh yes and the pleasure of getting to eat it afterwards as well um nothing really beats that so in 2018 you published a book called the plantain cookbook which is very exciting i I cannot wait to get a copy Mm -hmm. uh we're going to do a giveaway aren't we on pbn food soon so we need to I need to organize that with you. So if you're listening, uh, um, please do check out PBN Food. That giveaway will probably be running on PBN Food. Um, now, first of all, what is a plantain, for those that don't <laughs> know? And uh, what what kind of dishes can we find in, in this um, wonderful uh, 40 plantain-infused recipes? <laughs> yeah, so starting at the beginning, plantain, uh, it, it's... I think of it as a vegetable, but it's probably technically a fruit. Um, It's very similar to banana, but it's larger in size, and it's normally cooked in savory dishes rather than sweet. So it comes in different stages of ripeness. You can buy it when it's green, when it's yellow, or when it's just about turning 
dark and spotty. And at each and every single stage of the plantain, you can cook it in amazing ways. So for instance, when it's green and unripe, you can use it in curries and that's when it's very starchy and sturdy. Uh, when it's yellow, you can have like pan fried sweet plantains. When it's spotty and dark, you can mix it up into pancakes or um, these little dumpling type things that we call musa in Nigeria, which is similar to like a donut, but you can have it savory or sweet. Plantain for me is just one of those ingredients that I grew up eating tons of, you know, grows in abundance in Nigeria. It's we have it with almost every single meal. Well, me personally, at least. And it's just one of my absolute favorite ingredients to use. And so in 2018, I just had this idea to take this one ingredient and figure out a ton of different ways to cook with it, because I think it's very versatile, but there aren't a lot of recipes out there that really showcase what it can do. And so the book really kind of teaches you sweet recipes, savory recipes, dessert recipes um, that you can use just using this one ingredient. And yeah, for me, it was just a fun project. Um, but it's been great to see that other people are just as enthusiastic about plantain as I am. <laughs> so It's mm, amazing. I always, when people ask me what's plantain, I say it's like a giant banana, but it yeah. tastes a bit like a potato. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Obviously, you know, going back to sort of like culture and, you know, lifestyle, life is obviously very different here in, in the sort of Western world compared to Africa. How... How has your life really changed, I guess, since you've been in, in, in Europe and compared to sort of life in Africa? Because when I think about my life in Africa, it's very, very different. Culturally, it's very, very different. We have to, de we have to deal with very, very different things in this world. You Obviously, you came over very young, um, but how do you sort of identify yourself now? Because, you know, people always ask me, where are you from? And I say Africa, and they go, oh, but you're not black. I'm like, no, there are white people in Africa. <laughs> But for you, it's a totally, it's obviously different. You know, you, 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 when people ask you where you're from, you say you're, you know, you're, you're Nigerian, you're more likely to be believed, but like, how has it been for you sort of identity as an, you know, with your identity in, in Britain, you could say, because I assume you, you would, would you call yourself British now as well? Uh, yes, I would. Yeah. So I, and I've always, I've always had like the British passport, passport, for instance, because my mom was actually born here. And back then when you were born here, you were automatically a British uh, citizen and your kids would become British citizens like automatically as well. So there's always been that bit of duality there. But yeah, coming over here, it, it took a lot of adjustment, I would say. Growing up in Nigeria is very different from being an adult in Nigeria, I think, because I was there earlier this year in February for the first time after 12 years. And the experience was just, you see things in fresh eyes. Um, I remember before our trip, I had romanticized Nigeria so much. I was like, you know, I remember the weather and everything was great. And all of those things are true. But alongside all of that are also the infrastructure issues that we have there so you know electricity isn't always constant and traffic is a big problem you know just getting from one side of the city to the other would take like a whole day and so there are a lot of stress points to living in Nigeria that maybe as a kid I didn't really pick up on that much and then coming over to the UK and just everything being quote-unquote easy that's a very different experience. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I think for a while I did kind of struggle with that identity of like, gosh, I want to hold on to Nigeria as much as I can. 
and this feeling of not wanting to let anything interfere with that. I think I, I definitely struggled with that for a bit as well. And then I think that's probably on a subconscious level, maybe why I do what I do now with a vegan Nigerian and specifically calling it the vegan Nigerian, because I have this desire to like, just never let go of where I've come from and my culture and to really celebrate it. Um, and I think coming over here definitely brought out that side of me in a way that I probably didn't think it would. Yeah, it's an interesting world because, you know, identity uh, and who we are as people is is complex. And often, you know, when we live in a world where uh, you know, human beings look at each other and they judge each other by based on many things. So the way we wear our hair, our accent, uh, the color of our skin, uh, what clothes we wear, you know, what jewelry we wear, what kind of bags we buy, you know, the car we drive. There's so much sort of, you know, judgment of our identities from the outside, um, you know, let alone on the inside, you know, battling with who we are. You know, are we are we British or am I British or am I Zimbabwean? Am I um, African or am I what you know what is my identity identity, yeah you know because I grew up in Africa my father my parents families have been in Africa for many 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 generations but um the world doesn't see me as an African because of the color of my skin Uh, and so sort of my identity as an African has been has been very difficult and complex and hard to sort of unravel but as I've got older, I've realized that I need to hold on to that. I need to be proud of my African roots and that, you know, my family have been part of, you know, uh, many great things and good things and positive things in Africa. But then, you know, we're obviously lit in a world which is constantly surrounded by prejudice and racism and and sexism, where p- the, these isms, even speciesism as well, which are all intertwined, aren't they? Where humans treat each other and animals with hatred or dis- or or uh, exclusion because of various things as i was saying as a as a vegan and a, and as a woman of color how have you well, have you experienced sort of challenges in this area it's not just within the vegan community or if you have in the vegan community but sort of being in british culture because the conversation around identity and prejudice and racism is getting is become very loud and very strong over the last uh, few months because of what's been going on in america what have you experienced in this country and and would you like to share any sort of your anecdotes about about that part of your identity I kind of underwent an awakening, I would say, in that area, because growing up in Nigeria, right, I'm surrounded by people who look like me, who act like me. I never had to question who I was or uh, whether I was inferior, superior to anyone, right? And so coming over here, I mean, even just taking it away from food for a second and just thinking about beauty ideals, like what is considered beautiful, I, I don't think I realized how much I had internalized what I had seen on TV or what was considered beautiful, right? And so I think it, it took a while for me to identify that within myself, but also externally and identify how like the media and what I was seeing around me was reflecting to me that there is a certain standard of beauty or a certain standard of being, right? So it's like, I think the best way to describe it is I discovered what it meant to be other when I moved here in a way that being in Nigeria, I never had to think about. And so for sure, I have definitely been through the whole process of maybe embracing self-love a bit more. I think it's a process that had to happen, that needed to happen, where I just 
came to love myself fully for who I was and really being proud of where I came from and my culture. Because even in sort of like the vegan scene, for instance, what I saw presented to me didn't really reflect me (laughs) in any way. It was like you go on Instagram or you go on social media and the people who are elevated in these spaces are people who, you know, have a certain look, who go, who do yoga, who drink kombucha or green smoothies, you know, the look I'm talking about. Um, Of course. (laughs) Yeah. And so when you don't see yourself in that, it kind of makes you stop for a second and think, huh, Mm. something needs to change here. Something needs to be done. And so, you know, the unrest that we've seen over the last few months, it's like, I really do hope it leads to lasting change in a lot of people, because this is nothing new to black people, right? No. We have been talking about this for years. We have been experiencing this for years. And so now we're seeing most of the world wake up around us and it's like, well, welcome to the party kind of. Do you, do you feel, obviously, there is absolutely no doubt about how people are treated differently because of who they are, the way they speak, the color of their skin. Humans are the, the prejudice and, and, and racism and sexism and homophobia that exists in society is, 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 you know, goes back time immemorial. But with regards sort of like representation, I've asked my friend uh, Jay Brave this. We, we had a podcast a couple of weeks ago where we talked about that it, there's so many things at play here for people of color or, or black vegans in the UK. You know, black people in the UK make up about 3% of the population. So when it comes to kind of representation, you know, vegans make up even smaller populations. So black vegans or, or African vegans, um, black African vegans, such as yourself, you know, being able to be seen requires so much more courage from you to be able to step up and say here I am you know what I mean so it's so much harder for you to be able to step up and say I'm here let me be seen you know give me a chance throw racism on top of that throw you know all this culture what did you say uh, perceptions of beauty and everything else the way people perceive the norm um, on top of that and it makes it even harder so the conversation was like well we've got all these problems the way people perceive each other throw the numbers on top of that which is you know the number of people who identify as black in the uk is only three percent it's almost impossible for people who are who don't who identify as being black to be seen or noticed because it's it's almost like the game is against you in so many different ways how can allies or people of uh, non people of color sort of what can we be doing what should we be doing to help and support and and be there as friends and family and loved ones you know in this time because it's you know as you said it's a conversation that's been going on for such a long time but what can the people around you who are who are not people of color do more of to support you and to help you because i think this is what i've asked my friend my friends have asked me as an lgbtq plus person They've asked me, what can I do to help me? And, 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 and I just, I often just say, you know, listening and being there, but maybe you have some more thoughts on that. Yeah. Listening is definitely a big part of it. Just doing away with your idea of what you think the solution is and actually hearing it from the source. And then I would say having those difficult conversations with your close circle. I mean, this is something that, you know, I strongly, strongly believe in because, racism and all of these issues they start at the micro level they start in the conversations we have around the dinner table when we're in this living room with our families right have those difficult conversations don't allow things to slide because you know once it slides on a micro level that's where you see it escalating externally so yeah just listen and then educate yourself 
I've said it before, like it, it's your job really to, to really delve into this and to mm. find out how you can be a better ally, right? There are books, there are resources, you know, a lot of people have written some great stuff. There's Why I'm No Longer Talking to Black People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. Um, that's a book I would highly recommend. So yeah, when I see that effort being made and, you know, allies actually stepping up and speaking out, that is hopeful, in my opinion. So yeah, I think more of that. Absolutely. And I think the biggest fear I, I know a lot of people have is they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And it goes for every, other areas as well, sexism, men supporting women, you know, homophobia, gay, gay, gay rights and LGBTQ plus rights. People are afraid to speak up because they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to embarrass themselves. They don't want to step out of line or say something that may make people more offended. But the point is, there's nothing wrong with offending people. It's important to do what's right. That, you know, if your grandma, who's like in her 80s, is, is, is coming out with racist commentary, putting her in a place might offend her, but it's not going to kill her. You know, I mean, she might get a bit angry at you, but if, you're, if your parents are making racist comments or your mates in the gym are making racist comments or sexist comments, there's nothing wrong with just simply calling your friends out and saying, hey, that's not right. You know, why, why are you saying that? Like a serious face and a serious tone of voice. That's not right. Why are you doing that? Why are you saying that? And, you know, in a group setting, you know, and it can be scary to do that, but in a group setting, people stop in their tracks. I've done it. People stop in their tracks and they look at you and they go, oh, sorry. You know, because often there's like racial bias or a gender bias or any of these other, in you know, these internalized prejudices, you know, they, they've been burnt into us by our family or our friends or our culture or even the television. I mean, it's, you know, the stuff is everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but moving on to more positive things and, and sort of more life-affirming things, like there's obviously so much struggle in the world where there's so much suffering, so many animals suffering and people suffering, and the world often feels like this chaotic place where, you know, we're just, as individuals, we're like, what can, what can we do as people? We're just, I'm just one person. What do you do to sort of try and keep yourself afloat like mental health and physical health like what do you what kind of practices do you have that help you keep your ship going forward and you know keep you hopeful for the future a few things actually you know aside from cooking which is the big one you know I love to journal so just recording my thoughts and seeing my thought patterns over a period of time I think definitely helps because sometimes the world can seem so overwhelming and huge and the problems large. And I'm one of those people who like, if I stop long enough to think too much about all of that, I feel weighed down and sort of burdened by it all. And so just taking those like sort of quiet moments to just pause and be grateful for the little things in life. I like to surround myself with positive people as well, as much as possible people who are working on their passions or who are just contributing in really beautiful ways to the world. You know, I love to be inspired by that. And those are some of the things that definitely keep me hopeful when I see people using their talents in ways that benefit not only them, but the people around them. And it creates just this great sense of community, great sense of, you know, you're not the only one in the world. And there are good people out there who are doing good things. And I like to focus on that more than the negative, I would say. 
Amazing. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guest this final question. If uh, you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're vegan. <laughs> the pig is your friend. Oh, yeah. um, and you have you have one vegan dish, uh, one book and one music album. What would you take with you? Ooh, okay. So one vegan dish uh, for me would be jollof rice and plantain. One book. This is a hard one. Because I love reading so much. I don't think I could boil it down. Anything by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I just think she's brilliant. And um, yeah, maybe her first book, Purple Hibiscus. I could read it every single day. And what music album would you take with you? Maybe Sam Cooke. I recently Lovely. really gotten into his music. And it, it's just, I feel like he would keep me calm <laughs> on the island. <laughs> <laughs> when those, uh, yeah, when those storms come. Exactly. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Ms. Tommy Makanjola. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next week with more veganism, food, fashion, technology, and everything in between. Mm-hmm.